This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan, the fitness man. What's up, y'all? Thanks for tuning in, listening to, you know, the Blue Collar Elk Hunting Learning Curve Personal Development Podcast. Uh, Let's get right to it. So... I'm driving right now, heading back to Spokane from beautiful Bozeman, Montana. Man, I would love to live there. It's kind of an outdoor industry hub, a lot of amazing people, just a huge valley with amazing mountains in every direction that's got a lot of animals in there, a lot of critters, a lot of elk. Just uh, leaving Bozeman, I was helping my buddy Ryan Lampers at his Western Hunting Summit. Basically, I owed him one or two. He's helped me out at both of my elk shape camps uh, as far as being a subject matter expert on backcountry and nutrition in the backcountry. And he just hangs out at the camp and is readily available for anyone with any specific questions and everyone gets some one-on-one time with him. The guy's in his mid-40s and he's just really a phenomenal hunter, but has a lot of experience, a lot of days logged in the backcountry. But him and his wife put on a summit. We talked about this in November of 2018. I called him up to ask him to come to my elk shape camps. And he told me he was thinking about doing something actually similar, but different. Uh, I was excited for him. Ryan's kind of a mule deer guy. I'm kind of an elk guy, but we both like all the things just getting out in the wilderness. We have a lot in common. We met in the backcountry. Actually, we met elk hunting on public land and ran into each other and just have been friends ever since i think that was sometime in 2010 or 11 can't remember but known him for a while i've always stayed in touch and um yeah he's just solid people so anytime i can repay the favor to salt of the earth people him and his wife hillary uh it was awesome so i figured i would record a podcast on the way home solo and just kind of empty out my thoughts on what i've learned after not only putting on two camps that i run but helping his summit as well, and just some good, solid takeaways. So hopefully this is worth your while, worth your listen. 
let's get into it. So my topic today that I spoke at the camp was Ryan had me go last. He said, I want you to do your spiel. And I was like, my spiel? What is my spiel? He's like, you know, just like you do at your camps, just get everybody fired up and do your public speaking motivational deal that you do. And I was like, man, I don't know. That's a lot of pressure to like know that you're supposed to go in for 35 minutes to an hour and leave everybody stoked on life and hunting and you know being a guy of faith I a lot of times when I've done a lot of public speaking but there's not one time I haven't ever gotten up in front of a room of people and I haven't had time before that where I just prayed that I would have the strength and say the right words and that I would rely on not my own strength but his strength and um, I don't talk about faith a ton on here but I do think you can look through the cracks and see that uh I'm really just a a regular guy, a regular family guy with not a regular passion for elk hunting and and pretty ambitious and motivated and I want to take that cup that's overflowing and of just drive and spill it onto other people and help them improve their life. That's really where I find a lot of value. Okay, so now that I've done like three camps, if you will, I've met a lot of people across the country. Uh, Ryan had a lot of people all over the place, just like my camps. So I'm meeting people on the East Coast, the Southeast, the Midwest, down South, all over the country, and we're all just the same. Regardless of where you live, we got this fire for hunting and what it does and what it does for us. And and so I just wanted to capitalize on that today. When I talked to this group of people, I was like, man, you guys have just gone on a overnight hike with Ryan and Brian Barney and Mark Livesey into the beautiful mountains, the Gallatin National Forest. You you went in the backcountry, you hiked in in the afternoon, set up camp, glassed the evening, woke up in the morning, glassed up black bears and grizzlies and some of these guys, probably their first grizzly they've ever seen. And it was just incredible That's that they get to kind of see where they're at. Like, I know after talking to a lot of them, there was a group that was pretty fit and pretty used to that. There was a group that was kind of middle of the road. And there's a group of just guys that were probably hurting a little bit. And then after that, they came off the mountain and they went to a workout place in Bozeman. It's called Mountain La- uh, Mountain Tough Laboratory or Mountain Tough Fitness and uh, I've seen their guy, this guy's stuff on Instagram. They do a lot of sponsored ads, and I think they sell programs for backcountry and stuff, which is awesome. I think anyone who's on the same team as me is promoting fitness for hunting, more power to them. So they went down there, and these guys had them do a team workout, and they had to like memorize segments of a Ranger Creed. And everybody had to remember it while they were under duress. And it was a team format. And I love team workouts because me personally, I always will push harder when there's more than just me on the line. If there's other people on the line, I'm going to push harder. So back when I owned CrossFit, Spokane Valley, we did a team workout at least once a week was the workout of the day just because they just bring out the best in everybody. So that was cool. But that definitely was probably a little too much stimulus for some of the guys that just weren't in shape, weren't used to being at elevation. Uh, the backpack little overnight probably worked them over pretty good. And then to come off the mountain and go right to a hard workout, some guys were pretty smoked. And then I got there Friday night when they were done working out. We all met over at uh, Cody Rich's place. He's got a little place in Belgrade. He's got a sweet little setup. He's renting out a um, an old farmhouse that's got 
a lot of acreage and just right in a very convenient spot where you can get to Bozeman real quick or Belgrade and Cody Rich is just he's got it made man the guy is doing things and I look up to some of his stuff he's very innovative and very smart behind a computer and he's just a good business guy so I wanted to be around Cody and pick his brain I mean he's obviously been podcasting a lot longer than me and he's monetized his podcast and learning about that a little bit and I definitely, just so you guys know, that's something that I'm probably not going to do. Um, this podcast for me is a way just to reach people. And I think it's probably one of my biggest platforms. The downloads are really good. So I'm going to keep it super simple here and just like focus on delivering my message and that making this podcast be really worth your while and you can count on it to basically always be able to get on here for free and, and absorb the information. So we uh, fired up the grill and everybody brought their bow. A lot of the guys were archery guys. A few weren't, didn't matter. Um, We're all hunters and Dave Brinker was there and jamming out to some of his music and his songs. And it was just a really special evening, eating elk burgers, shooting bows. I mean, that was probably my favorite part of the whole thing. And it was a really good night. And it was just more just relationship building and it was great. And then Saturday, more of like a classroom type setting where these guys got to hear subject matter experts like Brian Barney talk about backpack hunting, backpacks in general, and all the stuff that he's learned. Uh, Who else was there? And then Hillary came in and did her thing on basically preventative health measures when it comes to nutrition and supplements, and she's just brilliant. And Ryan came in and did his backcountry thing. So already just a lot of knowledge bombs dropped. And then in the afternoon... We did another workout, but we brought bows into the workout, and it was a lot of shooting under duress, and I jumped in there with the guys, and um, see, Saturday, I woke up pretty early and went up to Highlight Canyon before camp and, and did like a five-mile run up in the mountains at elevation. I just, I don't do that very often, but when I get the opportunity, I take full advantage, and so when I got to camp, listened to everybody speak, and then we did the workouts, brought the bows. It was pretty cool. We did like a a mountain tough workout. Those guys came out, uh, minimal equipment, just you, your body weight and a bow. Very simple yet effective workouts. And I think that exposed a lot of people to where they're at. And I purposely jumped in there. I'd already kind of gotten my workout of the day, but I wanted to participate and I wasn't there to show off or like make sure that I win every workout and anything like that. I just wanted to be one of the guys and show that, hey man, I'll... I'm all about hard work. It will always pay off. And so we did the workout and then we came inside and did another workout. And that was kind of a a pretty crazy workout. It was every minute on the minute, certain amount of movements and reps and you go until you can't go. And I knew that wasn't good for me because I can go a long time. And I knew that it was going to come down to just me and some other guy. And I probably... This is what I do all the time. I do CrossFit style workouts. This is like I literally have been owning a gym and working out every day for 11 years. And then I worked in gyms for eight years before that. So it's not like I was new to any of these movements. And so the first minute was 10 burpees. You had to do them legitimate. And then the second minute was 15 air squats and five perfect push-ups. And you just did that. The faster you got it done inside that minute window, the more rest you got. And I don't know how many burpees I did, but I felt like that workout went close to 30 minutes. So probably 150 burpees later, 
and a lot of squats and push-ups. It was down to me and a guy named um, Brock from Iowa. He's a stud. He's competed at Train to Hunt. I think he's had some success there. And he's just a total stud. Him and I would be friends if he lived near me. But uh, it came down to me and him. And it started out with a room of 20-something guys. And it ended up just being me and him. And they started shaving the time down. So now you had like 45 seconds to get the 10 burpees done. And then 45 seconds to get. And so it just went down to who wanted it bad enough, I guess, or whatever. And I was really hoping Brock would just fold up throw the towel in because he was definitely a little bit behind me every round but he was getting it done and so he was really taking on a lot more punishment but he had so much grit and that kind of stuff just inspires me like I should just say shout out to Brock if you're listening to this man you really inspired me I love just when people push their limits Uh, and then after that everybody that didn't uh, complete that had to run an 800 meter run with a 45 pound bumper plate and I wasn't going to just sit back and watch people work. So I went and did that with them. And so that's what they got exposed to. And then after that, this is a pretty long day. Uh, then they had Randy Newberg. Actually, no, the Mountain Tough guys did a lecture on mental toughness a little bit and kind of the, the moment in every hunt where you could quit or not quit and how that kind of makes or breaks success and how pe- there's usually just a 10% crowd that always is successful And of that 10%, there's usually 3% that are, like, successful no matter what the circumstances are. And it came down to mental toughness. I enjoyed that piece. And then Randy Newberg came in, which is an honor to finally meet him in person. I'm a huge fan of what he stands behind, which is self-guided public land, do-it-yourself hunting. Not the, hey, everybody from Under Armour, let's meet up and go hunt big bulls in Utah. Like, that's not relatable to me. I don't have $15,000 to buy a landowner tag. I do not want a guide um, because I, I just am, just do not want to be have my hand held when it comes to elk hunting. And that's a pride deal, and I admit it, but that's just what I don't – I'm not into that. And so Randy's never preached that. He's always preached just like on your own, do it yourself, public land. Here's how I do it. He's always been an open book. He's been an advocate. He understands politics. He understands the government systems, the federal, the state. He's a wealth of knowledge. He's pretty, you know, he's only 54, 55 years old and he's done so much. And I love that Randy's position in the industry is one of what I want to be, which is, hey, Yes, I have sponsors, but I have a real job outside of this, so I don't have to do anything I don't agree with. I don't have to be told how to walk, how to talk by any sponsor because I'm being paid. I'm going to do me, and if they want to drop me, then drop me in. Randy's always done a good job of evolving. If you watch, like, he's one of the first guys to just walk away from TV networks and do go straight digital online, Amazon, YouTube, his podcast, And I just think he's a leader and he's not afraid to evolve and push the limits. And so I can't say enough good things about him. So he just hung out, told some stories, enjoyed the hell out of that. He's a solid dude. And that was day two. And then the last day was today. Today was like the first speaker was the one lecture I was looking forward to the most because I felt like it was my biggest chink in my armor. And it was on digital scouting with Mark Livesey. Mark is originally from Missouri, but he's a transplant to Montana. He's lived here for about three years. So for like 20-something years, he's been having to drive from Missouri to hunt elk every year. And so when you don't get to scout and you live 20-something hours away driving, 
you better do all your homework. And given his personality, he gave and broke down the most thorough lecture on digital scouting I've ever seen. And I actually recorded a lot of that, and I'm going to play that here on this episode when I'm done with my spiel. But I'm going to get him on my podcast, and I already told him we're going to go over just Google Earth and KLM files. That's it. I'm going to give him that boundary. He's got to stay inside those boundaries and just... I want to walk away from that podcast knowing how to utilize that to the best of my ability. And so that's going to be coming up soon. I'm going to get a hold of him. I got his number. We're going to connect and do that. Then after uh, Mark spoke, then we had uh, Corey Miller, who has owned a bow shop for many, many, many years and is now a sales rep for PSE Bows. He was there to just help with archery instruction for some of the noobs. So there was an opportunity to shoot and get some coaching, very similar to my elk-shaped camps. I would say all in all, that was pretty cool, but very casual. And then I came in to do um, a little elk-shaped lecture, and then they had a round table at the end, and that was it. I mean, that's a pretty worthwhile experience. So if I were to compare and contrast the summit versus elk-shaped camp, the summit was definitely more about Western big game hunting, whereas elk shapes obviously about elk hunting. And I like to stay in my lane. Sure, I like hunting antelope, bears in the spring, and mule deer when I draw a good August tag or whitetails in November. But if I don't elk hunt, it's not really, that's just what I want to do over anything else. So elk shape camps is more probably about personal development than anything and leveraging elk hunting and to make yourself the best version possible. And so that's what I was assigned to do was bring it all together at the end of this summit. Ryan's camp seemed to be very, like I would say bigger names, but shorter amount of time with each one, but getting exposure to a lot of different amazing hunters and a lot of different angles. And for his first one, really impressed with how well it went and I know those guys definitely got their money's worth and I think he should continue to do them there's a tremendous amount of value so when I came in I was like okay what should I tell these guys and I really didn't prepare I kind of wanted to go off the cuff but I definitely wanted to be at the camp as much as I could and then go so I could at least kind of hear what these guys were learning versus just have a set powerpoint go through it I just didn't know if that would actually stick. So what the point of my message was, and I think you guys can gain some stuff from this, was I was like, all right, guys, I'm supposed to come in here and get you motivated, but I got to be honest, like, you need to have a reality check. You have just been exposed to some of the most top-notch hunters and subject matter experts combined 100-plus years of hunting experience all into one weekend. You're not going to just leave here and know how to do everything all of a sudden. So what should you go, what should you do from here? And the first thing I told them was, go ahead and work towards progress, not perfection. And here's what I mean by that. You're not going to be able to implement, integrate all these pieces of nuggets of information right into this season. But you can work a little bit on everything each day and know that you're making progress as the season approaches throughout the season and of course you better roll your sleeves up when the season's over that's when most of us work the hardest and I think I saw some heads nod and I think people were like oh yeah okay Dan's right like there is so much information here how do I sift through it how do I apply it I'm a little overwhelmed so I had him take a step back and look back at the last couple of days 
and don't focus on the things that they felt, you know, were cool or, or, or exciting or that they did really well at. Conversely, I said, I want you to focus on a handful of things throughout this weekend that made you the most uncomfortable. The situations where you felt the most fish out of water, the areas where you knew you had a chink in your armor and you were like, man, I just got exposed, where your butt puckered the most. For some of the guys, it was day one on that hunt or on that hike into the backcountry. They were deconditioned. They had, this was their first exposure to high country or elevation. Um, They didn't know any of the gear. They didn't have the right gear. Um, glassing, they didn't have the right optics or they didn't know how to do a glassing or a grid system or where to look for animals. Um, maybe it was in the workouts. So maybe they just sucked at working out or they were short of breath or they didn't recover or their nutrition. They didn't bring any food with them. They ate like crap. It could have been the backcountry knowledge and all that just seems so foreign. So the e-scouting or possibly the shooting under duress or when people are like telling them, hey, you're punching the trigger when you shoot a bow, like that's not going to work long term. That's actually, that's going to end up costing you an animal or all of them. So it was really exciting for me to say, all right, take a second in this lecture right now, we're going to stop and write down the top three things that you felt the most discomfort with. And then now you're going to go back home, go back to the lab, and work on them. That's what we do at my camp. Elk Shape Camp's there to expose you, expose your weaknesses, spend less time on your strengths and more time on your weaknesses. Just like what I do at CrossFit, I don't allow athletes to work on strengths. I find their weaknesses and I make them make it a strength. And that's how you become more well-rounded, more efficient, and more confident. In my lecture, I kind of told the story of how I got into fitness and how I got into hunting and my background, and I'm going to go ahead and retell some of that right now. And when I'm done with that, I'm going to bring it back to what Elk Shape really is all about. And then we're going to go ahead and listen in to Mark Livesey's little bit of a lecture, and then I'm going to go ahead and end the show back with Corey Jacobson for the two-minute drill. So I'm 37 years old. I grew up in Elk, Washington for the first seven or eight years of my life. And believe it or not, it's a small, small town north of Spokane, and it has no elk that I know of. I don't know why it's called Elk, Washington. But I grew up pretty poor, but I didn't know that. So I want to give my parents mad respect for whatever stresses that they faced. We never knew it. That's awesome parenting. My dad was a pastor of a small community church, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. We didn't have a lot of money, but I never knew that. And I had free reign to roam all over, the, basically out in the country. I was always outside. I was always in the woods. My dad was always going grouse hunting or deer hunting, and a lot of times he'd take me. And that stuff makes a difference. Like, that's what planted seeds to where... I knew that's what I wanted to do. By the time I was 10, we had moved to town. My dad was done being a pastor. That ship had sailed, and he was ready to just kind of get out of ministry, and he went right into what he knew how to do, and that was carpentry, swing a hammer. My mom went back to school, became a nurse, 
and we moved into town, which was kind of a culture shock for some kids that were pretty sheltered. Like, I remember being on the school bus for the first time, and the school bus was playing, like, pop music, like, secular music, and I had never heard any of that, and I was just kind of culture shocked from the second I stepped into public schools, and it only got worse from there. But I obviously, like any kid, you adjust, you make friends, and... The reason why I'm telling you kind of my upbringing is because it kind of defined who I was. Uh, I had some formidable years in my early teenage years, and I'll tell you about those real quick. So once my parents kind of got established and we weren't really poor anymore, both parents were making income. I was going into junior high, and my parents had just sold their house in town and had purchased 10 acres just outside of town. They were going to build their own house. My dad, obviously being the handyman that he is, was going to do it a DIY style for as much as he could. And so one of his friends said, hey, come rent out our basement while you guys build. You can stay here for six months. It'll be great. So my dad was like, Dan, you're 13. Here's the deal. I can't pay you to help me work on this house day in and day out, but... You've been wanting that mountain bike for your birthday, and I'm going to get you that mountain bike if you work with me all summer long and help me build this house. And I said, deal. Now, this mountain bike, this is like the late 90s or no, mid 90s. This mountain bike was like $1,200. It was like top end mountain bike, and that's what I wanted. And so that was the carrot I needed. So every day, either after school or when summer came, I spent all my time pretty much helping my dad build this house. Meanwhile, in the basement of this house that we're renting, the guy had a full-on home gym like I've never seen before. And it was awesome. And he caught me down there one day early on just messing around, probably trying to bench or something. And he had like stacks and stacks of like Flex Magazine and oh, what was that other one called? Muscle and Fitness and all these books from Joe Weider and all these books on bodybuilding and he's like, do you want to learn how to work out? And I was like, yes, I do. I was 99 pounds. I think I wrestled at like 90 pounds in seventh grade. And I was just tired of being weak. And I had kind of a motivation to like get stronger for wrestling. So that summer when I wasn't swinging a hammer, I was in the weight room with this guy who actually taught me some really cool stuff. Like we didn't get to bench press first. Like he made me do leg day at the beginning of the week. And we did body part training like bodybuilders, but like he taught me how to push through pain, good pain, of course. And he taught me how to do all like total body workouts and isolation and how to eat right and make my food and get protein. And he even sold like medical stuff. I don't remember exactly what he sold, but he sold some, uh, I think they were Ross products. He sold uh, Insure. Insure is like a meal replacement for older folks when they're having a tough time to getting enough calories and they're starting to get dwindled down to nothing. It happens when you get older. You take this two cow, it's like 700 calories a shake and it helps get you vitamins and minerals and calories, if you will. Well, he had cases and cases of that in his garage and he's like, dude, you have free reign. I want you to have at least two of these shakes a day and then eat all this food and you're burning a lot of calories with your dad and you're going to burn a lot of calories working out with me. You got to eat. That summer, I went from 90 pounds, actually 99, I wrestled at 90, to about 135 pounds 
going into eighth grade, and I hadn't really seen very many of my friends during that summer. I was very busy helping my dad getting that house built. So when I rolled into eighth grade, I kind of started to hit a little bit of puberty, but I really, I really started to turn heads. People were like, almost didn't even recognize me because I morphed so much into just a little brick house of muscle. And I tell you what, I learned so much that I really loved the confidence that came with that. And the knowledge that I learned too, as far as people were always asking me how I did it, what I think they wanted to do that too. I knew that it helped my wrestling. I knew that I was stronger than the guy in front of me on the mat. It helped me with football and baseball. And those were my passions. So that's one of my side stories I told. And then the other one I told was how I got into hunting. So at age 10, I took the hunter safety test in Washington. There's no age requirement that I know of, but you just have to pass hunter safety Took the test, passed it, and started hunting deer when I was 11 with a 30-30 lever action. And by the time I was 12, my dad got me a 308 for Christmas, and he took me deer hunting that fall, and he took me to deer camp, and that was just life-changing for me. I was with a group of guys. We There was no wives, or it was just a bunch of dudes at campfires with good food, and everybody told their stories from the day. It was just awesome. And the day I killed my first buck, my dad drove me out to this part of, uh, we were in um, this Diamond Lake area. It's really, it's, it's a little bit north of Spokane and it was November. It was like a foot of snow and we found this scrape right off this old road. And he said, Dan, you need to sit on this scrape all day. You're going to get a buck. And I said, okay, dad. So he actually just dropped me off age 12. He's like, all right, I'll come, I'll come back and get you uh, at dark. And I was a little bit scared, to be honest with you. I, I'd never really hunted by myself. My dad just kind of made me man up right then and there. And I sat there for a couple hours and I got really cold. And so I, I made the decision to walk back to the truck. I knew where he had parked it and I had known how to start it up to at least turn the heater on. And that's what I did. And I could still see the scrape from the truck. It wasn't that far. Um, looking back, I probably could have shot just darn near from the truck, but I didn't have that truck on for more than a couple minutes and here comes a buck with a doe steps out of the timber right next to that scrape and they're just milling around hanging out there I hop out of the truck walk around the corner and there they are throw the gun up all I see is brown and I pull the trigger and the buck just drops in his tracks now he's not I must have not shot him perfect I might have even spined him because he was like dropped but he couldn't he was still alive so I had so much adrenaline I just put my gun up didn't even aim and pulled the trigger completely missed him and then he's still like kind of squirming and I just hated every second of that seeing that animal suffer so I walked up point blank range and shot him again so three shots my dad heard him he was there within an hour and he walks up to see me standing next to a pretty darn good palmated public land whitetail probably like a 130 class buck for my first buck and the stoke was so high and the guys at camp were so impressed all the attaboys slaps on the back high fives that was huge for me I was just I felt like a man and it was really cool to to do the whole deal bring the deer home show my mom and my sisters and get the deer hanging and I was hooked but being a three sport athlete in junior high you don't really have time to hunt so after that hunt I never really hunted again my life revolved around working out and doing sports And then in high school, I actually kind of just knew, which is kind of probably rare, I just knew that I wanted to be a personal trainer the second I graduated. 
My mom got me a gym membership. I was the guy who brought a cooler of food to school every day. I like made my food. I made sure to eat three, 4,000 calories a day. I lifted heavy and just kind of a meathead. So once I graduated high school, I got a job two seconds later and I was a personal trainer convincing people to hire me to be their trainer and I put all my energy and effort into them and became a really good trainer. And it was a very rewarding job because I could plan my hours around my school. And so I would go and train clients in the morning really early and then go to school and then come back, work out, and then train more clients in the evening. And I was doing 40 plus hours a week from age 19 on. And I ended up graduating college with an exercise science degree and I worked my way up the gym chain of command and I was managing gyms at a very young age. Everyone that worked for me was older than me and I was just kind of shoved into a leadership position. And I really enjoyed it. And then I decided to get my master's degree and I continued being a, a manager at gyms and, and learning how the business operated in sales and customer service and how to retain clients and how to super service them and re-sign them and marketing everything and, and managing employees at such a young age. And looking back, I probably really didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I really, I just tried. My effort was there. And so when it came time to finish up my master's degree and all that and the thesis, I had to do an internship. So I, by the grace of God, I ended up getting connected with a company down in Arizona called Athletes Performance. I believe it's called Exos now. The guy who founded it is Mark Verstegen. His wife, Amy, was from Spokane. That's how I got the connection. And I went down there and I worked with him and a bunch of other interns and their strength coaches. And all we did for four months was train NFL combine athletes and major league baseball players, getting them ready for spring training. It was, um, it was unbelievable. And I learned all their training systems and I learned a lot about leadership from Mark Verstegen and it was very life-changing for me. And when I'm Decided to come back to Spokane. I wasn't there very long until I got recruited to go to Boise, Idaho and open a Parisi Speed School, a speed school for youth athletes, collegiate athletes, any pro athletes in the Boise area, as well as run a personal training department for Gold's Gym right there in Meridian, Idaho. And I lived in Boise for a year and I... I tell you what, I've, I've never worked so much in my life. I was doing 60, 70 hours a week. I never left the gym. I was always training moms and pops and kids and training trainers and putting all this knowledge to work. And, and when you have an exposure to such a high level of training, strength and conditioning, people really look up to that because you can't get that anywhere. And the Parisi Speed School system that I learned was unbelievable. They started their franchise and uh, where was it? In Fairlawn, New Jersey. So I was over in New Jersey all the time. Like I flew into New York a handful of times and was learning from those guys and they were unbelievable world class at teaching change of direction, acceleration, deceleration, elasticity, plyometrics. Like I really could train athletes in, in their specific needs. And then at some point in 2007, the owner of the actual businesses, he owned several Gold's Gym. He started sitting down with me with a P&L, a profit and loss sheet, and really started mentoring me on like how to run a business and where we were at. And he really put a fire under me to help increase our revenue so he could start being profitable. So I came up with this idea to train the moms and dads on their lunch breaks. And I was going to do like an advanced fitness class for adults. I didn't want to train... 
I didn't want to do basic stuff or one-on-one training. I wanted to get group training so I could make more revenue and train more people with my time. And so I started this advanced fitness class for adults and I started looking around for ideas on how to train them and I found CrossFit. And I started looking into the CrossFit website in 2007 and I thought these workouts were absolutely stupid. It was a formula to get people hurt. I knew better. I was a certified strength and conditioning specialist from the NSCA. I had a master's degree in exercise physiology. I was a National Academy of Sports Medicine trainer. I've had taken every personal trainer trainer certification. I knew everything, right? No. CrossFit put everything that I knew and tipped it upside down. And I started doing a few CrossFit workouts. And next thing I knew, I had these guys doing CrossFit workouts and I had drank the Kool-Aid. Like this was the most potent way to work out. This gave you the most bang for your buck in the shortest amount of time and the results were undeniable. And so CrossFit had a certification and they had a, they were very young at the time. They hadn't, they weren't on TV yet. Reebok hadn't partnered with them. They wasn't the CrossFit games. They only had a handful of affiliates, probably less than a hundred. And they had a certification process and it was a thousand bucks for their level one. And it was a thousand bucks for their level two. And me having the ego that I had, I was like, well, I'm not going to waste a thousand bucks on some low level stuff. I'm going to sign up for level two and just knock that out. And so I signed up for a CrossFit level two, showed up and they they must have been so young in their infancy that they didn't have a system to where they couldn't prevent that. There was no checks and balances. So I just signed up and showed up at the original CrossFit in Santa Cruz, California in 2007, ready to get my level two on. And they did a short amount of time review on the level one. And then they were like, okay, guys, this, this weekend's all about your ability to coach our movements, the nine essential movements. And this is a pass fail. You're just going to be put into groups. You have to coach all these things. And then we're going to grade you pass or fail. And one of my instructors was Andy Stump. He is the cleared hot guy who's buddies with, uh, John Dudley and knock on and he's that Navy SEAL dude. He was one of my instructors and he was really hard on me. Like I think he knows how to find weakness and he found that I like he knew right away that I didn't have my level one. He could just tell. And I'll never forget like that first night we all went out for drinks afterwards and he tried to get me completely annihilated. He kept on bringing me drink after drink and I started like sneaking off and pouring them down the sink because I was not going to be hung over because the next day was the test day. And I actually haven't talked to Andy since that certification. I would love to get him on my podcast and see if he has any memory of that. He probably doesn't. He's done so many of those. But he had a CrossFit background. And and CrossFit had helped him overcome some serious injuries that he had in the military while serving. So mad respect to him. So that next day comes. We get put into groups. And I'm going to fast forward. I basically end up crushing the test. Like, I knew how to command, I knew how to coach, I knew how to cue, and I knew how to demonstrate the movements, I passed. And I was like one of just a handful that passed. A lot of people failed, I'd say majority failed. And then this guy named Pat Sherwood, he's still with CrossFit HQ, he was one of my instructors. And then this girl named Nicole Carroll, they sat me down and they said, hey, we don't know how you got in here without doing your level one, so we can't give you your level two. But if you go to our level one, you will automatically get your level one cert and your level two. And I said, you know what? That's fair. Went back to Boise, Idaho with my level two. Ended up giving those guys my two weeks notice because I just knew right then and there 
that it was three weeks out from September and I wanted to go hunting anyways. And I was going to move back to Spokane and start my own CrossFit gym. So I gave my notice. I hunted for like five weeks straight, moved back to Spokane, booked my level one, got my level one done in Seattle, drove over there, came back to Spokane, started living with my dad. And at the time, I had hired Kenton Claremont, the guy who runs Train to Hunt. I had hired him when I was a fitness manager years ago to work for me as a personal trainer. And we obviously became friends beyond that. And when I got back to Spokane, I called him up and I said, hey, bro, have you ever heard of CrossFit? And he was like, yeah, man, I've been doing some of the workouts. I really like them. I'm like, well, there's a CrossFit in Spokane. I want to open an, I want to open one. Let's go down to that CrossFit. Let's do a couple workouts there for free and see what we think. And so we went and did a week free at CrossFit Spokane. They had just opened and we sat down for coffee and we're like, dude, let's go business partners. Let's start a CrossFit. And I, I kind of had my eyes on North Spokane where I had worked most of my life, where I grew up, where I knew most of the people. But Kenton, by the grace of God, had found us a place in Spokane Valley and it was 8,000 square feet for $500 a month. I don't know if a lot of you know about commercial real estate, but that's, that's just unheard of. That's like basically free. So I think I got $10,000 and Kenton got $10,000. We begged and borrowed and we started CrossFit, bought some equipment and just hit the ground running. And for that first year, I didn't take a salary. I was in a different position than Kenton. I had been starting to do some hunting stuff. I was selling advertising on the side for Sportsman's News, Sportsman's Warehouse for Mike Dimming, making pretty good money selling advertising on the side. So I didn't take a salary. Kenton did which was fine. And we did that first year and we crushed it. We started like, we were actually started making money probably thanks to our really cheap lease. And we grew that thing together. And the reason why I tell you all that is because that's kind of how I got into CrossFit. And now I'm going to kind of go back to hunting here a little bit. So going back out of high school, I was one of those kids that started school when I was six. So I actually was 18 my senior year. And when I graduated high school and started becoming a personal trainer at age 18, I turned 19 real quick. And at age 19, I, I quit baseball. I turned down some, some, you know, some small podunk community college baseball scholarships. You know, the kind that are like, hey, we'll pay your tuition and books and you can play baseball and deal with politics and coaches. I just was smart enough to like quit baseball. It was just a dead end. It wasn't for me. I wasn't passionate about it. So at 19, being a personal trainer, going to college, I was like, dad, I want to get back into hunting. And so that very first year I bought a tag and I ended up shooting a whitetail buck right off our 10 acres, actually right off the back porch, if we're going to be honest. And it was really cool. And I was like, man, this is awesome. I kind of want more of a challenge. So the next year I told my dad, Do you, let's go back to some of your old deer spots in Elk, Washington. And he's like, well, I got a place we should go check out. It's a the backside of Mount Spokane is the Blanchard Hump. There's some big bucks in there. Let's go check it out. So we went and scouted in October and did a scouting trip, met back at the truck. And he's like, did you see anything or any sign? I'm like, yeah, there's definitely some deer in here. It's pretty cool country. What'd you see? And he's like, you're not going to believe this, man. I saw two bull elk. I'm like, really? There's elk in here? And he's like, I didn't know that, but I, apparently there is. 
So we jammed over to like the local sporting goods and picked up a hunting regulations for Washington, opened it up. Modern firearm elk started in less than a week from that day. I was like, dude, let's get elk tags. So we bought elk tags over the counter and we picked up Primos bugle tube and cassette tape. And we didn't even touch that stuff until we were driving to our first day of elk hunting, opening day at three o'clock in the morning. My dad puts the cassette player in his truck and we got the four wheeler behind us and the trailer and we're headed to Blanchard Hump. And we're listening to these guys talk about how to call elk in and they're playing real live audio of one of their archery elk hunts. And they got these bulls bugling and they're bugling back and making cow call sounds. And then you hear the arrow hit the bull and the string dumps. It's like, wow, that sounds awesome. All right. So my dad's like trying to learn how to bugle right then and there and he can't get it. So he breaks the Terminator tubal tube off and just uses the mouthpiece and he can muster a cow sound. He's like, okay, I can do that. Let's go. So he hikes us in the dark. There was like 10 trucks at the, at the gate. And uh, that was a little surprising. And then as we were hiking in, there was people behind the gate with their trucks and four-wheelers. And I don't know how they got in there, but you weren't supposed to be in there. But they were driving the roads. And these elk obviously weren't by the road. So we hiked into the basin where he saw the elk. And it's just starting to get daylight. And he's like, all right, sit next to that tree. I'll go a couple hundred yards and we'll call. Okay, Dad. And he starts calling. He does like a 15 minutes of calling. And I'm like wow, I'm elk hunting. This is cool. And then I hear a stick break and I'm like, what was that? And I look over and probably less than 20 yards is a five point bull standing there, not looking at me, but looking towards where my dad's calling from. The bull goes behind the tree and I just swing my gun over and he pops out behind the tree and I see nothing but fur in my scope. And I just pull the trigger. Boom. And my gun kicked pretty hard and I've never been much of a rifle shot, to be honest with you. And I look over and the bull's gone. And my dad was there within like minutes. And he's like, well, what happened? Did you shoot a buck? And I'm like, no, I shot a bull elk. He was standing right there. We went over and we couldn't find blood, but we could definitely tell where the bull spun and where he dug in and sprinted straight downhill. And the bull didn't go 100 yards and piled up and we walked up to this giant bodied elk. I'd never been seen one up close. And oh my gosh, I couldn't believe the size of this thing. And we were high-fiving. And then we kind of realized, like, reality struck. Like, we didn't really know what to do on a bull elk. So we treated it like a deer. And looking back, it's kind of funny. We, we gutted this thing out. And what seemed like hundreds of pounds of guts came out. And then we were like, well, there's a road down there a couple hundred yards. Let's drag it down there. So we just each grabbed a side of the horns and pulled and he didn't really move much. And about an hour later, we got him down to the bank next to this old cut road and walked all the way back to the truck, got the four wheeler, hooked the trailer to the four wheeler, went around this gate, which we weren't supposed to do. And we drove all the way up to that bull elk and with chains and come alongs and winches and some ingenuity, we finally got that bull hole on this trailer and tried pulling it with this little Kawasaki 300 four-wheeler. And every time we'd get going, this four-wheeler that was so heavy, the four-wheeler front tires would come up off the ground. And so I'd have to stand on the front of the four-wheeler just to keep it on the ground. And we eventually made it back to the gate. And at the gate was uh, two Washington State fishing game officers who did not look very happy to see us. 
And after getting an, pretty much a, a slap on the hands, they didn't give us tickets, but they scolded us. And the reason why I think they didn't write us up is because they knew we were just idiots. We didn't know what we were doing. I think they were pretty surprised to see that we got the elk out whole. We didn't cut it up into quarters or anything. And we got that elk back home, and it was hanging in the shop. And we, we hired this company called Mobile Meats. They came in, and they cut this elk up for us. And when they left, we had a table just full of all this elk meat cut and wrapped and labeled and put in our freezer and fed us for the whole year. So it didn't take me long to figure out, like, these Primos guys might know what they're talking about. I started buying their VHS tapes, and then I bought a bow. Then I bought my dad a bow, and the next year, we started archery elk hunting at age 20, and this was 2001. And at camp, I told them all the hardships, but I'm going to save that because we don't have a lot of time here. In 2001, I went archery elk hunting for the first time with my uncle and my dad in Idaho. We didn't know what we were doing. We got bulls to answer. We never got shots. We got close. We got into elk. I hunted for a couple weeks. It was awesome. I burned all my vacation. I was addicted. I was hooked. And my personality is all or none. And I just started going all in on archery. Teaching myself how to shoot. That's probably a mistake, by the way. Teaching myself poor habits. But uh, my first bow was a Martin Cougar. I bought my dad a Martin Pantera. Martin, I think they're still in business maybe. They're in Washington. And we were in it. And I didn't shoot my first animal with a bow until 2004. I shot a whitetail buck out of a tree stand. And in 2005, I shot my second animal with a bow. And it was a caribou in Alaska on a do-it-yourself trip. And my and I went solo on that, and that's a whole nother story for another podcast. But that was pretty cool. I was age 21. And then 2005, I tried elk hunting again in Idaho with more time. Didn't get it done with my dad. In 2006, we both drew New Mexico. It was Unit 52. That's northern New Mexico. Pretty easy tag to draw at the time. And we went down there, and we spent three weeks. I had the first season, which was the 1st through the 15th, and he had the second season, I believe, at the time was the 15th through the 23rd or 4th. And on day number 10, so on September 10th, I, I arrowed my first archery bull in New Mexico. Didn't call it in. I just snuck in and shot it, glassed it up, dropped the canyon, got up, shot it at 20 yards, and then my dad and I packed it out, went to town, got it hanging in a freezer, and then uh, hunted with him. And like, I think on the 18th or 19th, I called a bull in for him, and he shot his first archery bull on his 50th birthday. Never forget that day. So in 2006, Rod and Dan have killed bulls with bows. 2000, and of course, we uh, went back to Idaho that same year with the remaining time. I think we only had like a week. Didn't kill an elk. 2007, I drew New Mexico, went there, killed another, my second bull by myself, solo, at about just under 11,000 feet. I snuck in on a bull in his bed and shot him at 20 yards. It's my second bull with a bow, my third bull ever. And then I drove to Wyoming and met my dad, and we got taken into the backcountry by via horseback and hunted for five days, and we didn't know what we were doing, didn't kill an elk, saw grizzlies and bighorn sheep and big bulls and hunted near the Yellowstone border. It was an awesome trip. And then we went back to Idaho and still didn't. If you notice, I'm getting a lot of days in the field. Like I had built up such a good 
amount of vacation at the gyms I worked for that I would literally take all of September off. I wasn't married, didn't have kids. I had a lot of reps in the field, and I believe that's what helped my learning curve, albeit a slow one. That's what. That's where I learned. And in 2008, I went to Montana, and I shot a bull, and my dad shot his best bull, and that was somewhere near White Sulphur Springs, Montana. And then we went back to Idaho, and we still sucked, couldn't get it done. And then in 2009, I finally killed my first Idaho bull after eight years of buying a tag. That's like 3500 bucks worth of tags. I finally killed a bull, and he was a 7 by 7 herd bull that I snuck in and shot. So up to this point, I had never really killed a bull by calling it in. I kind of It took me that long to figure out that I wasn't good enough at calling elk. I didn't know what they were saying, and I had to depend on my dad to call. It wasn't working. And so looking back in 2009, it kind of clicked, hey, I don't need to call elk to kill elk, and that's how I started doing it. So in 2010, I stuck another herd bull. He was a nice 315-inch public land Idaho bull. I snuck in and killed him. He had like 13 or 14 cows. And I actually called for my dad, and he killed his first Idaho bull. And then in 2011, basically, it just started really stacking up. I think I killed three bulls that year, one in Washington, two in Idaho and then every year after that pretty much would kill two bulls in Idaho and any other state I'd go to I would generally kill a bull and so I started stacking a lot of bulls like I got into the I don't know how many but somewhere in the 20s close to 30 bulls I've killed now and not a lot of hunting experience relatively speaking but a long dry spell in there and that's kind of how I got fired up about elk shape so now that we've kind of caught you up to speed, I started CrossFit. In 2008, we opened CrossFit. And in 2010, Kent and I got the bright idea to start Train to Hunt to help hunters get ready for hunting season. And we did that together for about two, maybe three years. And we realized we were splitting hairs. Like, it was really hard to focus on two different businesses. And him and I worked really well together, but we figured out we'd work even better if one of us just focused on the gym and if one of us just focused on train to hunt. So we did a little buy-sell type of deal, and I owned the gym outright, and he owned train to hunt, and we went our separate ways. And we stayed in touch a little bit, but there was some rough waters in there. It's always weird when you're dealing with money and businesses, but looking back, I thought we handled it pretty well. And so I ran that gym for 11 years straight, basically. And I started Elk Shape in 2015. I started making some shirts, made a YouTube channel, and it was just more of a passion project. I uh, wasn't looking to monetize anything. And then just over two years ago, I started um, the podcast. And I kind of missed the, I thought I'd missed the window because there was like the Rich Outdoors had his and the Gritty Bowmans. And I, I enjoyed those podcasts. I still do, but they just weren't doing what I wanted to talk about, which was just elk hunting and personal development and making yourself better through fitness and discipline. And so started the podcast and the podcast really helped formulate like what is elk shape? And I started realizing really quick that elk shape wasn't about killing an elk. I mean, it was about shortening the learning curve, no doubt. 
but it was about using the idea of getting into elk shape year round to make yourself the best possible version of yourself. And the hierarchy for me is like starting with your faith, being disciplined and getting in the word and giving credit to God and not taking credit for yourself. And then it started with your spouse. It started with like loving your wife and it's hard to be married and like putting your marriage before your children. And next came your children and then your career and kind of having, kind of getting your shit together, really. And that's what Elk Shape kind of became about was like, okay, elk hunting is my why. It is my driver. And don't be apologetic about it. In fact, use it as fuel to wake up early and get the workout that you need to do that day so that your fitness never gets in the way of you killing elk. And it's about discipline yourself on Sundays and not just watching football, but actually, you know, two, three bags of chicken breasts and making your rice and vegetables for the week or making your big salads or doing some baked clean goods for the week, things like that, because you want to kill elk, if that makes sense. And so you start disciplining yourself and getting in the word and working out when you don't want to and making food and eating healthy and not eating dessert all the time. And And then it started leading into like being a better spouse. So like communicating more about where I wanted to hunt and when I'm going hunting. And, and even though it's like painful for me to tell my wife, because it, it's never fun to hear her be like shocked year in, year in and year out that how much I'm going hunting. Like, it's not fun for me to tell her the bad news that, um, yeah, pretty much I'm going to be gone for six weeks throughout the fall. It's not fun, but it's, it's more important to go through that and have the communication there and just get it on the calendar because she's never going to be able to read my mind. Even though I think it's pretty simple mind to read, I want to go hunting. And for being a father, like social media is so powerful, especially for my business, Elk Shape. Like it's like a necessary evil, but I'm not really going to gain much out of life if I just scroll through Instagram or think about ways to get followers or likes or reach back to all the messages I get on Instagram when it's family time in the evening. Like I'm going to be gone from them at least six weeks this fall. I need to engage with them. Put the phone down and engage. Wake up earlier and get your emails done. Wake up earlier and shoot your bow or wait till they go to bed. And, and so sleep has definitely gone down for me as I've had kids, but I've just been really cognizant or maybe intentional is the right word on not just being stuck in front of a computer all day and to like make time to be the best father because I only got one shot and really the only important stuff I do on this earth is help people and it starts with helping my kids and raising them right and helping people like you through motivation and inspiration and just being open and honest and transparent and relatable like and so I don't want to put myself on a pedestal Actually, I want to do the opposite. I want you to know how bad I suck at things. And I want you to know that I'm real and you can relate. And that I don't just plan hunts where I know I'm going to be successful. And I don't keep my cards close. Like I figured I'd probably relate to more people if I'm just open and honest about everything, including my finances. So on this podcast, I've even talked pretty openly about the lack of money I I make as a gym owner or did like when I was working for somebody and managing gyms, I almost made six figures at age 21 and 22 and 23 and 24. That's a lot of money for a guy that age who's making more money than his professors at school. And I wasn't done with my money. I saved it and I invested it back in myself through that business 
called CrossFit. And while I operated CrossFit, I never spent a dollar on a bonus. I never took a K-1 or distributions. Any extra profit, I invested right back into the business. I bought more workout equipment and I bankrolled money. And I don't want to talk about money too much on this episode, but I will say like in the course of 11 years, I've talked about it. My wife and I got on the same page. We paid off all the credit cards that she had, her car, my car, all her school loans. I didn't have any school loans because I paid cash as I went, and including master's degree. And then we put big down payment on our first house. And then we put a bigger down payment on our second house. So we never had mortgages that made us house poor. And then we bought this last house. We put over $100,000, which is crazy, into that house and to get the mortgage somewhat reasonable. And I still don't like how high our mortgage is, by the way. And then just recently sold the gym and not for a ton of money, but for amount of money that I can at least catch my breath for a second and really focus my energy into elk shape. And then just recently after making basically double payments on our cabin, even when we, money was tight, we finally paid off our cabin that we own 50-50 with my dad. That took 11 years. Not a single dime from our gym sale went towards that cabin. That was all just making double payments. And now we're down to one mortgage. So I have a Tacoma. It's a great looking truck. I bought it with 25,000 miles. I wrote a check for it. My wife's got a 2015 Tundra with 40,000 miles. We wrote a check for it. Like, it took us a long time to get there. But momentum and that snowball effect is a real thing. And I love talking about money because there's a lot of people listening that make way more than I do, but they're not as disciplined and they're in a different position and they're stressed out and worrying about money. And here's what I brought it back at the Elk Shape Camp and at the summit. Look, you can be the best hunter in the world. You can be the fittest, the strongest, the toughest mentally. You can be a biologist, an ecologist. You can have, you can know what the elk are going to do before they're going to do it. But if you don't have your crap together at home, if you and your wife aren't doing well, if you're not there for your kids and you're not engaged with them, if your business isn't running without you, it's going to affect your hunting. And so elk shapes a year-round pursuit to get everything dialed so you can hunt your hardest and be your best self year-round. And so I told the guys at the camp to write down the things that which made them pucker the most, where they felt discomfort, and to focus on their weaknesses and make them their strengths. So I'm challenging you to do the same. You've heard me talk about a lot of things. My story, how I got into hunting, how I got into fitness. You can tell I'm all or none, and I don't have very many interests. And to this day, I'm not interested in much other than hunting elk and fitness. And that's kept, and I want a simple life. And the biggest currency that I'm interested in is time. I don't want someone telling me to punch a clock nine to five. And I don't know if Elk Shape will be my career. It's kind of a startup, but I'm in a position to give it hell and to try to monetize a few things. And Elk Shape's gonna be about digital education. And so that online Elk Shape camp that I just created, I hope I get a lot of sales there because it's so powerful, the stuff that's in there. It's not just about killing an elk. It's got a lot of personal development. It's got a lot of fitness and nutrition and financial coaching. And it's just, it's like the sickest video vault where you can just digest it. And that's why I made it a year access. And yes, I'm plugging it, but it's really just, you ought to consider it. It's, uh, it's something that I think is going to be the most powerful tool. And the other things I'm selling are just little workout programs, nutrition programs that are short and sweet where you can see some results 
and get your snowball to start moving and growing. And that's what I want for people. I want people to take control of their lives, have financial independence, have the time to go elk hunting and not have them cost their job, their business, their relationships, their marriage, their kids. I want it to be a blessing in their life and I want their family to depend on that elk meat. That's what I want for everybody and that fires me up. If that doesn't fire you up, you are listening to the wrong podcast. Well, guys, I kind of went into a lot of just random stuff there, but if you're wondering, like the punchlines, they were for you to write down your weaknesses and to really examine them and start deciding what small things you're going to do day in and day out, not so you can be perfect, but so you can make progress. And that elk shape is 365. That's right. And you can do something every day in the name of better elk hunting. And that discipline will only bless your life. Like Jocko Willink says in his stuff, it's like discipline is freedom. I think another way to say that is discipline is leverage. And you can leverage elk hunting and discipline lifestyle to make yourself the best version possible. I challenge you to do that. We're going to now go into Mark Livesey's a little piece from his lecture from the Western Summit. I don't know what Ryan and Hillary Lampers are going to do with all the stuff that they filmed this weekend. I imagine they might do what I'm doing and make like a pay-to-play vault of the stuff. It would be worthwhile. And I'm just going to go ahead and drop some of this here right now. And I appreciate you listening to Elk Shape. As always, thank you to our sponsors, Discipline, Delayed Gratification, Hard Work, and Being Accountable to Yourself and Being Accountable to Your Actions. And I wouldn't do this podcast if you guys didn't give me the feedback that you do. So if there's anything I can do to help you, reach out elkshape at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at elkshape. Send me a direct message. I will get back to you. And I want you guys to know that elk season is around the corner. I wish you nothing but success. And make sure you know your why. Don't try to be perfect. Just try to progress every day. Welcome to the Two Minute Drill, sponsored by Elk 101. I'm going to sit down and chat with the elk hunting wizard himself, Corey Jacobson. Two minutes on the clock. Hurry up, offense style. Corey's going to drop knowledge bombs, and you are going to get better at elk hunting. So without further ado, here's Corey, and here is our topic of the day. Corey, last week you broke down your protocol on basically getting the gutless method and how to dial it, which was awesome. But now I'm curious, because you're pretty much a do-it-yourself guy, what steps do you take um, when it comes to processing your own meat slash how long do you have your meat hang and all the logistics with being on the road or near home? What's uh, what's your protocol for that? You know, I think the most important step for processing it is being careful while you're in the field with it, making sure it's clean, and then putting it in good quality game bags so that it can breathe, so that it can cool appropriately, and it's going to keep the dirt and the bugs off of it. From there, it's it's really a pretty simple process, but uh, there's, there's three things that will hurt elk meat, and the first is dirt or bugs. Uh, the second is moisture, and then the third is heat. And so you want to avoid all three of those in the field. If you're hunting, you know, like we primarily do in September, it can be really hot. But I found that even in hot climates, if you get that elk meat taken care of correctly and cooling, it's going to be just fine and you aren't going to lose any to spoilage. So I really judge uh, how hot it is. If it's over 75 degrees or so, I'm going to split, especially the back ham open off of the bone. I like to leave the meat on the bone for transporting. I also feel it helps it cool a little better because if you take off all the individual pieces and bone that quarter 
quarter out and then stuff them in a game bag, the meat in the middle is super insulated and it's going to have a harder time cooling. So if it is hot, the hottest part of that quarter is going to be right in at the bone. And if you do lose any meat to spoilage from heat, it typically starts right at the inside of the bone on the hind quarter. So if it's hot, I'll just split that open. I'll make a cut and incision down the bone and open that up so it can cool a lot faster. I hang it in a, in a tree or a makeshift uh, meat pole right there in the field so that the air can circulate around it and start that cooling process immediately. Hey, elk hunters, Corey Jacobson here from elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic. From planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between, the University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today. If you want to kill elk, boys, I'm telling you right now, the best way to kill them is to always be flexible and always be moving. If there's no elk there, freaking go to option two. That doesn't mean elk won't show up, but guys archery season, the odds of elk just rolling into a unit, pretty low. Now, rifle season, that could happen. You know, I mean, you could have a unit, you could have an area that's got nothing, and the next day there's 500 elk in there because, you know, everybody's shooting shit at them over the ridge or something. But archery season, no. Even on pressure, they'll move, but I I just don't see them very often just moving complete mountain ranges or complete elevation changes during archery, very rarely. But this is really the core, the purpose and the focus. Like I talked about laying in the tent looking at your onyx. Man, I've done it so many times. Poor judgment when you're in the field. It's really easy when you're in the comfort of your house and you're on your computer and you're making good decisions. But when you start getting the all the factors, the fatigue, well, you guys did... When you did that, how many of you guys did pretty well on the Ranger Creed when you were working out? Did you guys do pretty good on that? But you're seeing that they were talked a lot about that. Mount Tough talked a lot about making decisions when you're under stress. And the hunt plan, it doesn't eliminate it, but boy, sure helps when you got all that laid out. I call it the wing it factor. It just takes it out of the equation. You're just not out there just winging it. Um... Positive reinforcement. I told you the example, laying in the tent, it's raining, you pull your, how cool is it when you pull that out and you're like, oh, I got a place to go tomorrow. I've looked at that, it's coming back to me. That was a great looking little spot. I'm excited to get up in the morning and go to it. How many times have you guys got up in the morning just because you thought you had to hunt because you're on the hunt? You have no idea where you're going. You're just like, 
I'm hoping there's an elk bugling right there at camp when I get up. <laughs> because if he's not, I, I guess I'll just spin the roulette wheel and go left, right, or up or down. Our guys have done it so many times. You're going to spend more time hunting. You got, how many of you guys uh, do more than 10-day hunts? Big, longer than 10-day hunts, okay? But a lot of guys don't. If you've got 10 days, like Ryan says in his presentation, he really doesn't like to mess with less than 10 days because you just can't grasp it the way you really need to grasp it. I think that's particularly true of mule deer hunting, more, even more than elk hunting, but not necessarily. But if you've got 7 to 10 days, you need to be ready to roll all the time, and this plan will help you. Historical knowledge. This is a little tidbit right here. If you do this process and you do all the things that we talk about, when you roll, you're going to have such a wealth of historical knowledge of an area. Stuff's just going to start jumping out and making sense to you. You know, and, and that's that one-dimensional thing. When you're looking at multiple resources, things just start to mold. One thing doesn't do it, but the combination of the two. Okay? All right. Now we're going to get into kind of the really how I look at things. First thing I do is research core areas. And what I mean by that is I'm, I've kind of decided that this is where I'm going to go in this general area. I don't know exactly where yet, but I'm researching core areas. I almost always start with national forest maps, even before Google. Not many people do that. And I know that's a little, it's, a little, it's laborious. It takes a little time. But man, I have found some just some gems with this. So I have every national forest map that's in print for Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, Idaho, New Mexico. I have every single map. My wife thinks I'm a freaking lunatic. I got these giant banker boxes of, of national forest maps. I brought one for you guys to look at if you want to look at it on a break. Of how I do it. I outline, I look at the descriptions of the unit, and I outline every freaking unit in the whole map, of every map. Units I'm not even going to hunt. You're like, why the freak would you do that? You don't even realize how much you're going to learn by tracing and reading those descriptions. Those roads and those ridges and how it runs. When I talk about that historical knowledge, just by tracing this unit, 334, which is not a very good unit, Montana. It's a terrible unit, so don't go hunt it. Um, you know, I traced it. I've learned a couple of the mountain ranges that are Mystic Lake. I've, I've got the road out. I'm seeing the trailheads on the boards of the unit. And it's just, I'm just filling my head with basic core knowledge. The next thing I do is I circle every access point. So in this unit, I don't worry about any of this because what is this? Private. There's a, this, you can see the bar kind of. This is a dead end road, which is a hunting magnet. You got a trailhead here. You got a trailhead campground here, which is a definite hunting magnet. Then you've got a real obscure one. This one, it took me a while to find. I had to look at the codes on these motor vehicle use codes, these are motor vehicle use codes, and I had to figure out that this is actually not 61, 
This is actually an eight. You can kind of see it. And the roads are not open in that section during September. So the dead end is right there. And it's not an obvious dead end. It's not a trailhead dead end. And I can get right to the ridge. This is the, the, the divide. I can get right on the ridge, and I can take this ridge right around to the spots I want to be. Um, so in this particular example, I have hung this unit. It wasn't fantastic. This is where I chose to go in from this particular one with my setup. But all of these other, but I have, but I know where the pressure is coming from. So in my mind, I'm thinking that this is really attractive. Why? It's in the middle of the unit. It's a combination campground trailhead. It's a freaking practically a paved road to it. It's a lake, which is a no-no. <laughs> lake accesses, boys, you better get ready to hunt off trail because they are recreation nightmares. But if you get off trail, you can kill elk. But if you stay on the trail, you're going to have trouble because everybody's just up and down those trails all day long. Those elk know it. They're just a quarter mile over. So this is where I think most of the hunters are going to come from. So I'm feeling like, and this, I'm a little over-exaggerating this a little bit, but I'm feeling like these hunters are going to do a good job of keeping those up right here where I can get to from here. Okay, and this is, I mean, a simplistic view. But I, so I, I take a map, I do this, and then I start flying over with Google Earth. And I'm looking at that, like that drone, I look at the drone image on top right. I do my own flyovers on Google Earth. And I'm analyzing just the view. And I'm seeing, are there any natural obstacles that are, that are showing up that are serious that are going to keep me from going in from different spots? I mean, you guys, when you do those Googles, you can see those canyons. And you can see, you know, real serious features, obviously. And you can see, is there something blocking these guys? Are blocking hunters coming from here? Is there something blocking people coming from around here? And then, and also, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but I, it's so easy to get wrapped up in Unit 334, right? Well, this little gym is a draw unit in Unit 270. That trail is actually a decent access to here. Well, I eliminated this, this one because I talked to a guy it says, dude, you gotta have like a, it is a very, very difficult trail, like to get my llamas up. The road conditions are horrible. So in my hunt plan, in my hunt area, okay, of this area, this is, guys, this is a, this is a hunt area right here, okay? This, I would consider this a hunt area. If I was only doing this, this would be hunt area one, this would be hunt area two, and this might be hunt area three. If I was gonna, if I was gonna put all my cards in one unit, now I don't do that in Montana, because we're lucky, because we have general tags, we can hunt other units. But if I was in a state where I drew a unit tag and I had to only hunt that unit, I'm just guessing that I might start to break that down that way. But in my hunt area plan, my access, primary access, is this. It's written. My second primary access is this one. I think I can get up there with my trailer if the weather's good and it feels good. 
I think I can get there. So if I get here and I got problems, like 50 dudes, or there's a ATV jamboree, or or whatever, I don't got to get my maps out, guys. My plan, my option two is already ready to go for me. I, I have multiple access options, always written down, always identified, always, there's always a waypoint in my system, and I've already got the driving routes worked out. I don't even have to get out, guy. I've got my driving route to get back to my truck, get back around to this. I've already got it in my mind for that hunt work area, okay? When you start doing this kind of crap on the fly, it just says it. Time's up. Especially in your group and your buddies are like putting pressure on you. Um, so a lot of the National Forest maps now, one of the reasons I start with these is they're doing a better job of putting the motor vehicle use maps embedded into National Forest maps. Not always super accurate, but they're pretty good nowadays. So you can start two things. The green, so in this example, this is a, uh, I think that's unit one, yeah. Okay, so number one. Unit, is that a one? Whatever that says right there, in that, or seven, whatever that is. You'll look that up in the legend. It'll tell you what the motor vehicle regulations are in there. But the key point on this, if you see this green road, a green road means it's open year round, no matter what the rules are on the motor vehicle use map. This Number, whatever that is, I can't read it, but if that says that area is closed to motor vehicle use, all motor vehicle use, that's not true, because they told you that this is a green one. Green is open year-round, even though the motor vehicle use time frames may say not. Yellow roads, this one doesn't have, there's a red one right there. Yellow and red are restricted time frames. So that means you got to look that up and kind of understand what, what is the time frame that road is open, okay? And, but again, your legend in your map has all that information. <coughs> Guys, in my opinion, there's no reason to start your Google Earth stuff. There's no reason to jump on your systems. If you got roads, you got access, you got all kinds of other systems you don't want to deal with, I have to know kind of what it's looking like before I start jumping into the details. That's basically what I'm saying. Um, Motor vehicle use, I, that, guys, I just don't like to hunt places where there's freaking ATVs and motors. I just, that doesn't mean there's not elk there. I just don't like it. It just, I like the experience almost as much as I like the hunting, so I, it's just my personal thing. You know, another thing, how many of you guys use those DeLorme map books? You guys have those? You always want to have one in your truck for your state. Those red lines, they're really good resources. Sometimes just pop out, get an overview. You're trying to relocate. You're trying to look at the best driving route. Driving routes out on X, it's hard. I mean, that's how we almost couldn't get to Ryan's spot. So I always have one of those books for every state that I'm, that state I'm in. Um, there's another source. Again, I don't get anything from it. He only has Wyoming and Colorado. But this guy that owns DIYMaps.com. Anybody use those? Yeah. This guy back here, he should be teaching this. I targeted him yesterday. Those maps are excellent maps, but he just doesn't have them for every state. But if you're hunting Wyoming or Colorado, you can buy them by unit or a group of units. He's got excellent motor vehicle use, excellent topographic, really nice maps, and not very expensive. Okay. So again, now that we've established a core area, yes? Um, two questions. 
National Forest Maps. I go to nationalforestmaps.com, I think, is the best. They have the best in stock, usually. And guys, really pay attention when I say dimensional. There's a lot of sites that have National Forest Maps, but they're the old freaking versions. So do a Google and find out, make sure it's a 2007 that you're getting the newest one. Because a lot of them are trying to get rid of these old ones, and there's been an updated one since. So if you just go to the first place you find on Amazon, you may be getting a five or six year old version, okay? Uh, now that we've got this quarry, this is kind of the same area that we're talking about. The next thing I'm gonna look at is the zones of pressure. I alluded to this before, but this is the second component of my digital scouting. Where is the pressure coming from in a unit? These obviously have identified these pressures, okay? Um, I'll just give you a little spot here, a little tip on this one. So I know where there's elk on this spot right here. I'm going to get in there. So guys are hiking in here, going all up in here. Guys are going in here, they're hiking up. Just, and not, I mean, this is a big area, so they're up in here. Man, this little spot right here. I found a buttonwood elk right here. And why do you think that is? <coughs> One, there's no access from private. There's no road. This is a pretty serious canyon right here. This road is not open. Actually, this road is not closed right there. This road is actually closed right there when I got up there. That made it actually even better. And this trail right here, I cannot find it. We're going to talk about that in a second. I've looked and looked and looked. It wasn't there. It was so old and so unused that I couldn't freaking find the trail. Now, I got kind of excited about that. I like that with llamas. I didn't, but I didn't know that when I saw it on the map. It shows a trail. Not all trails are created equal. So, but this little spot right here, boys, is a really, this would be a good, if I was going to look for a gun spot and I wanted to, it wasn't too part of a hike and I wanted to park in with gold my wife, I can camp maybe there, and that's quite, I might have to, that's a pretty good hike. This is some good area where the, where the elk can come down on the private, retreat back into things. It doesn't have a lot of access to it. Um, so without even looking at Google Earth yet, I'm already a little excited about this little spot for maybe right. I, there might be some in there archery, but remember, this is the divide. Okay? This is the continental divide. You can't see Tobol on this particular national forest map, but basically, this is sloping from here up, okay? I mean, we're going up. Obviously, there's canyons and stuff and that kind of stuff, but for the most part, we're going up. So this is obviously lower, this is obviously higher. So I start looking at zones of pressure. This is what I do. I mark this on the map, every map, all the time. I outline the units. I look at every road. I circle every trailhead, Can't every campground. I circle every dead-end road. Guys, dead-end roads are freaking hunter magnets. Everybody wants to, they think when they, man, if I just get that dead end, there's going to be elk everywhere. 
I can't tell you that. I'll drive a road for 50 miles. There won't be a car parked along the road. You get to the dead end, it looks like a Walmart parking lot. Have you guys seen that? It happens all the time. And pull-offs. Any place that has a designated little pull-off. But all that land in between, you know, I think Elton was talking about that. Is That's Corey Jacobson's kind of the take, too. Um, but you, you know, keep, I'll keep that in mind. Uh, motor vehicle use, private land, I'm always making sure. Most of these maps are pretty good with it, but I always do this. So then the next thing I do, which is not, this is only, I did this on computer, guys. This is not a, an appropriate circle. I take carbon. You guys, have any, any of you guys watched my videos on digital scouting yet? No, only a couple. Okay, good. At least I'm not repeating myself. I take cardboard. I'm, <laughs> I get a lot of crap for this. I take cardboard and I cut out a one mile and a two mile circle out of cardboard. What I mean by that is based on the, based on the legend, you know, the distance on the map. So based on that, you guys know one mile limits, obviously. I do a two mile to one mile circle. What I start to do is I do a one a two mile. I use the two mile template on dead ends, campgrounds, trailheads. I don't even touch anything in that two mile space. I don't care how good it looks. And again, that doesn't mean there's not elk there. That's just something I do. I got a two mile circle around these spots right here. That's not two miles. Yeah, that's about a mile. Then I do a one, I take that circle and I got a, I punch a center punch and I drag it down the road. I'm sorry, it's not the road. All the roads, I'm dragging it down the road on both sides of the road. I do one mile on every side, each side of the road. I wish I had a picture of what, how I do it. I didn't bring one. Basically, I'm drawing a one mile buffer around every road. Seems like child's play. I do one to two. Sometimes I do two, but most of the time one. Trailhead's two, okay? When you just do that, you trace your unit, your one-mile buffer zone around every road, you've done a two-mile buffer around every campground, dead end, trailhead, man, the places just start to pop. You're like, oh, man, this spot. There's nothing inside a circle here. There's nothing inside a circle here. Now, this unit's not a very good example because it's pretty... There's not a lot of access, okay? It's not the best example. But you take an area that has a lot of access and you do this technique, you're going to find little pockets that are going to start jumping out. There's no way, I'm telling you, there's no way to do that with a computer. You can turn on motor vehicle use map layers. You can turn on U.S. Forest Service trail. You can do everything you want. But, but you know how Onyx and, and those work. The more you zoom out, right, the more less detail that you're seeing, right? So you can't look at this overview on those apps and on the computer. So when you're just trying to get the big picture, that's how I do it. <clears throat> so then what I do, and again, a lot of people were saying, no, Cody actually said this comment. He goes, if it's in the roadless area, I don't go um, because he thinks that's where hunters go. I agree. But I also agree that it's places that hunters want to go but can't go. So remember, I do think that the roadless areas are attractive to people. And what I mean by that is on Onyx, you, can, you guys are familiar with the roadless layer. You can, Gaia has it too. We'll see it, turns it orange. And you're like, if you see this orange place, you're like, well, that's going to, everybody's seeing that orange place. I agree with that. 
But guys, the reality is it's eight miles. They're not doing it. Um, m m most of the people. Ryan and Barney will be back there, but that'll be it. Um, so then once I do the tracing, guys, I always confirm it. So let's say, for example, sorry. Let's say that this is the spot that I like that just looks looks pretty roadless. There's some drainages in here. I've looked at it a little bit on satellite. I, I kind of like this pimp and I just kind of like that little area. It doesn't look like there's any circles that are in it. I'll always turn on my roadless layer on Gaia and double check it. Maybe, maybe there's a road that's not on here. And I feel pretty good when I do the roadless layer and I do this that I've got a, a pretty good understanding about it. But I don't, guys, again, I know I sound like a broken record, but I try not to be one-dimensional. I will always confirm it if I can. Okay, the big picture will start to develop if you do that. Another tip, this, I'm, I'm going to throw in a few tips now from now on. When you're looking at places where you have to hunt downhill, the hunters hate that. They, for some reason, hunters hate to hunt downhill. They want to kill an elk and pack it downhill, right? So what do they do? Everybody goes up the mountain. But if you can find a trailhead or an access point where it's a freaking 3,000 vert drop into an area, sometimes those can be gold because nobody wants to do that shit. It's bad enough to help pack elk out downhill. When you start bringing elk uphill, it's a whole nother ballgame. Now, I'm not talking about just crossing ridges with elk, but like Brian Barney, I mean, he's five canyons back. I mean, that's a different story. But you know, a two or three mile from the road downhill is a good spot to not ignore, okay? All right, when we talk about, this is an actual, I tried to blur it, it's not, oh, not too blurry. <laughs> this is actually last year one of my hunt hunt areas. This is one hunt area um, for a ten day hunt. This is what it looks like. I'm gonna zoom out so you can see these are camp, 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 camp. You notice I got a billion camping spots on there. Not, and there's about eight, I think. I'm not going to camp at all those spots, guys. But I, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later. Um, actually, let's wait on that. I want to, it's coming up. So once I've reviewed my pressure, I, I, I then I've looked at my access points. I told you that. I've planned my travel routes. I put markers in for the turns. Guys, when you put a marker on Onyx, you're going down the road, and it's in my view. It's so easy to hit the turn. And, and you know what? If you've got a spot that's got a whole bunch of roads, and you're zoomed in on, on X, it's hard to kind of, okay, is this the right road? Or it's not. Guys, just place a marker at your turns. I know that sounds so stupid, but guys, are you in the business of hunting? Are you in the business of navigating to your hunting spot? How many times with a horse trailer, you drive by your spot and like, ah, shit. Then I got to go find a place to turn that damn llama trailer around. Sometimes that ain't easy. So I don't want to miss those turns. I, I know that's a little overkill, but I like to do that. Um, parking areas. Now, this doesn't apply to all you guys, but I analyze all the trailheads or spots that I'm going to go with my trailer to make sure I can freaking turn that thing around when I get up there. I have had some nightmarish situations where I got to the end of the road and it was just like the road just ends and it's a ditch here and a ditch here and I got a horse trailer on the back. 
so on Google Earth, I can look at that parking area. I also like to look at the parking areas when I don't have the horse trailer. Can anybody tell me why? Right. If it, that, if it looks like it's like there's not even an area, and I mean, it's not a big area, and there's no cars there on Google Earth, and it's September 15th, I'm like, huh, that might be too bad. But if I pull it up and it's Indian Creek Trailhead in Colorado and there's 150 freaking cars out September 15th, I'm like, huh, maybe that ain't the spot. Because you can get a lot of data from this if you just take the time to look at it. So I analyze where I'm going to park for two reasons. Me, one, for the trailer. But two, how used does that parking lot look? Does it look like it could service 100 cars or does it look like only two cars can park there? I mean, it doesn't, guys, it isn't the end all. It isn't the magic bullet. But remember what I talked about the odds game? It's stacking all these things together to put odds in your favor. Okay. Overview. Now, Cody's and I's favorite thing is just to throw a lot of shit on the map. And then when we get there, like, what is this? Um, this is, guys, I put this one up because this is, this is stupid. This is an example of me being too many spots I want to check. There, you couldn't hunt in a 30-day hunt. You couldn't hit all those spots. I looked at that. I'm like, it's not that. Yeah, compared to Cody's <laughs> would be solid blue, and you would there's no way you'd be able to tell where the area was because it'd be blocked out by waypoints. But um, but so now I put it. You know, I begin to put the markets in, etc. But camps, this is, a, this is something I really wanted to stress to you guys. How many times, and Ryan, you can help me on this too, how many times have you packed in to a spot, you thought you were going to camp in a spot, or you didn't do it ahead of time, and you're just looking for a spot? Look at what we did at the Sphinx. We hiked up to that first bench. Now, the problem was we sent Brian Barney up there. That was problem number one, because Brian's got a bear burrito that's a one-man Cuban fiber, put, and he weighs 120 pounds, and he's four foot two. So he could find a spot on any mountain, anywhere, on a, on a scree pile he could sleep. But he wants me to bring a 14-man teepee up and put it up in the saddle. Guys, how hard did we look for a freaking spot to camp? I mean, and we ended up being in a mole hole, mole patch. I was expecting to get a back rub during the middle of the night from those moles. <laughs> but my point is, I'm, I love making fun of these next level guys. I, who had the green, was that Brian's green tent sticking off the edge of the ridge? I, I knew that was his. I saw that tent hanging on the precipice. I'm like, that's Barney's tent. That's Barney, that was, that was right. Like, I didn't know that, I swear, I did not know that until I just said that. So, we sent the wrong guys up first. But if we'd have done that properly, we would have looked for some benches. We'd have analyzed it. We'd have looked where the water kind of is coming in. Um, and we would have analyzed that. And then I wouldn't have hiked up another 300 yards looking for a freaking spot with my mom as it took the packs off twice. Okay? I would, now, I wouldn't have been down. There were some spots we walked by. It would be, uh, I know I'm getting kind of out there, but this is a good example. We had what I call the grass is greener syndrome when we got up there. When we first got there, there were some decent little spots. But we all thought, if we just go a little more, it'll get better. If we just go a little more, it'll get better. But by the time we're up against the rocks, 
and it's not any better, but nobody wants to go back down. <laughs> so we're just like, this is good enough. And, and then, I mean, we're in the most windiest, dangerous, lightning, the worst possible spot to camp in that unit, probably we're on it. Um, <laughs> we're in a saddle between two giant presses. Every grizzly in that country probably walks through that saddle. We got lightning. Well, you saw the wind. We couldn't even hold the tents down. Now, Brian's bear breed was doing just fine on that, <laughs> on the precipice. So, camp, guys, camp identification with Google Earth is way better than winging it down the trail and just finding a place to camp. Especially if you make a mistake. Like, you underestimate how long it's going to take you to get in and it's in the dark and you get there in the dark. Guys, there ain't nothing that pisses me off more than setting up a camp, waking up the next day, and 200 yards away, there's a better spot. And you got everything up. You're like, shit, I could have just been down there. I mean, how many of you guys, have anybody done that? Oh, yeah, I've done that a bunch. So I always have multiple camp options within pretty close distance because I get to camp number one, and it's shit. I got to some, and they're flooded out or whatever. Guys, I don't have to get out and look. I've got number two ready to go, number three. 